Thank you for listening to this episode of Liberation. I'm your host, LaCroy Hatcher, and Liberation presents Jim Merle. In this episode, Jim will give his inspiring life story of working in the ministry while living with a lifelong heart defect. Jim will also tell us of his mission to advocate and provide motivation to organ transplant patients through his YouTube channel, The Transplant Help. Please enjoy the show. Tonight we have a very inspiring gentleman. Um, he has a very interesting story to tell um, with his upbringing as a child. And he's actually, as a child, he's down in Alabama history, circa 1975. He can talk about that. <laughs> uh, his years in the ministry and some of the things he's had to deal with uh, as a child growing up even to his mid-30s and some of the things that we'll discuss. Uh, he also has a very interesting YouTube channel, The Transplant Helper, uh, which we'll get into. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have Jim Morrell. Am I saying that correctly? Jim Morrell? Yes. Or Jim Merrill. 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 Hmm. So as we had discussed prior to the uh, beginning of the recording, I was introduced to you by looking for a uh, evangelist by the name of John Shannon Sr. out of Memphis, Tennessee. And you were the um, author of a podcast called Preacher's Vault. Yes. And I got my fix of John Shannon Sr. And in the mix of, well, in the midst of getting that fix, I ran into your sermons. And you said a few things about heart transplant. And I'm listening, and I said, this guy doesn't sound nowhere near 60 or 70. What is his story <laughs> all about? So then I started doing some research. I found more podcasts about uh, that were put out by you specifically, The Renewal, The Daily Dose, and If the Truth Be Told. Uh, I want to get into your background because I thought this was just something that was just a heart defect, something that happened that is just out of the blue, but this is something you've been dealing with since day one, since God was counting your follicles. Yes. Uh, so explain to the folks your place in Alabama history in 1975. Well, uh, my name again is Jim Merle. I was born in on March the 12th, 1975. At the time I was diagnosed almost immediately after birth with a congenital heart defect known as TG. I can't say it. TGA, transposition of great arteries, um, fairly rare uh, for that to occur in a child, especially back in 1975. There were basically very little, if any, treatment for it. So they called us the blue babies and assumed that most children born with such a defect as that would probably live less than a year. Uh, that would be nothing else could be done. Um, thankfully, I happened to live in Alabama at the time. UAB Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama I had some pioneers of the pediatric cardiology surgery units and such as that, uh, younger men that were straight out of medical school that were, as one of them even referred to himself, as willing to cut somebody's head off and sew it back on. And so he, he was gutsy, as we would say it. Um, and so he decided that they could come up with a procedure that they had done only a few hand, handful of times at that point that perhaps could correct my issue. Uh, not to the point that I'd be healthy for life, but to the point that I would at least survive and uh, be able to, you know, have somewhat of a normal life as, as a child and ultimately as an adult. 
But uh, nonetheless, they thought that their best case scenario for doing the surgery at the time was to wait until I was a year old. I was pretty much a normal birth weight, but I wasn't growing. Um, I was born at eight pounds at night. I was nine pounds at six months, but they were trying to wait on a year. That was not able to happen. At about six months, they finally came out and told my parents, look, um, he's not going to survive. There's nothing else we can do other than the surgery. He's not going to get up to the weight we need. Uh, we don't think at all he'll make it to the year. So they kind of left it as their decision. Do you want us to take the chance and see if we can have a successful surgery, if we can give him any quality of life or extend his life, or what would you like to do? Uh, they gave the statistic roughly at the time, a predicted of about 10% that I would come out of the surgery. And so wow. I guess that leaves 90% I was going to die. Uh, my parents thankfully made a choice and the choice they made was to, to give it a shot. And so I went into surgery on September the 30th, 1975 at the time was the youngest baby in the state of Alabama to have full blown open heart surgery. There had been some, you know, some tweaks and such as that. But at the time it was just, it was unheard of for a child under a year old. Now today they'll do them in the womb. So it's different, but uh, they did what's known as the mustard procedure was the, just the name they gave the surgery itself. They did that back on September, September 30th, 1975 had a bleeding complication within the first 24 hours. But after mm -hmm. that, uh, did very, very well. Uh, my childhood, pretty much normal growing up, had a lot of restriction as far as physical activity, couldn't play organized sports, you know, yada, yada, that sort of stuff. Uh, but as far as being able to live a semi-normal child as a semi-normal child would, I, I was able to do that. Um, but they always thought I had to go to the cardiologist very regularly. Um, every time that I would go in a cardiology office over at UAB, they would move the equipment from the small little exam rooms they typically would use. They would move the equipment to a conference room uh, so that they could have 25 or 30 people standing around watching the exams. There will be doctors from all over. Of course, it's a student. It's a university hospital, so student uh, uh, medical students there. But doctors from everywhere watching, uh, doing the exams. Uh, my pediatric cardiologist later, much, much later in life, was rated by several of the popular magazines and such as being the number one cardiac uh, pediatrician in the in the world. Uh, my, the doctor that did my surgery was had the same ranking at one point, rated as the best in the entire world. And mm -hmm. uh, so I, I was given a chance at life. Uh, I don't give the doctors full credit for that. I give them an awful lot. Uh, they were skilled. I give my parents a lot of credit for making that decision, but ultimately I give God the credit because he preserved me as long as he did. Now, as I grew older, it was always predicted that there would be some some problems, some issues, some changes that would come about. And eventually, and I'll tell more about it later if you'd like, but uh, things did take a turn for the worse later in life. That's where I end up now being a heart transplant recipient of seven and a half years. Uh, but uh, for the most part, lived a pretty full functioning life with the exception of the struggle of just, you know, in the back of my mind, not quite having what I wanted. You know, my brother was an athlete. Uh, a lot of my family members the same, and I, I wanted to be involved in more than I was, uh, but uh, just had to struggle through and, and do what I could at the time. Thankfully, my parents were very supportive, um, faithful Christians, uh, members of the church. And so, always had in the back of my mind that uh, ultimately there was going to be a reward 
that was possible for me and for everyone around me, regardless of what my life would hold. So explain for us the transposition of great vessels. What, what exactly does that mean? Okay, the transposition of great vessels, also known as transposition of great arteries, depending on who you ask. Um, okay. The way that, basically in a nutshell, the way that works is my heart was hooked up backwards. Uh, congenital defect, uh, even prior to birth, my heart ran backwards. And so typically in the normal body, uh, the larger pump would supply the body, the smaller side of your heart would supply the lungs. And that's just kind of the way things divided up. Mine was reverse of that. And so my small side of my heart was trying to supply my whole body with oxygenated blood, and it always struggled to keep up with that. Um, hmm. As a matter of fact, the way it was originally uh, uh, there before that correction in 1975, it just didn't work. Um, I Again, I was called a blue baby. I would need to be resuscitated on a regular basis. It was always a a fight every day just to try to keep me up to where I could, you know, even survive that. But that it basically the heart was backwards. And so the corrective surgery they did back then was to, as a workaround, basically to reverse some of that. They had to patch two holes in my heart. At the same time, they had to redo some uh, what they call baffles and valves and such to try to make the blood run in a workable way. They couldn't really switch it. At the time, they have what's known as an, arter an arterial switch now, which is a better fix. They couldn't do that at the time. This was just a patch through. Um, so much so that on my 18th birthday, and this was simply by chance, if you want to call it that. I'm not a big believer in chance, but that's for this guy. It's what it was. On my 18th birthday, my pediatric uh, cardiac surgeon, who had never spoken to my parents or us since the the infant days, um, he happened to find some of my old records, dug through them, got a phone number, which was still good, um, 18 hmm. years later, and called my mother, having no idea it was my birthday or anything else, really. Called my mother and said, I just, I hate to ask this. I just want to know if he's still alive. And, of course, she was able to say, yes, he's at school, he's at working, you know, he's doing all these things. And so just a blessing that I made it. They didn't expect me to make it out of childhood. Certainly didn't expect me to make it to adulthood, but I did pretty successfully. Again, aside from those restrictions and some later difficulties that would come up. And now you mentioned blue babies. Um, just describe that the uh, descriptive term that you use. What, what was that about? Um, well, it's, it's the fact that we get so out of oxygen, I guess you'd say that our skin gets a grayish blue tint, uh, such as someone that's had a massive heart attack or unfortunately someone that's already passed will get that bluish tint to them. A very, very scary thing. As a matter of fact, I didn't realize this when I was a child, obviously, but I was told many, many years later that outside of my mother and father, there was only one person to my knowledge that would even touch me as a, as an infant, as in my mother and father couldn't get a break. They couldn't hand me off to a friend and say, Hey, hold him for a few minutes while we go get some rest. Even my grandparents were pretty much, uh, to some extent, even afraid because everybody thought, well, he's going to pass away in my arms and I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that person. And so there was like a neighbor up the street, she happened to be a member of the church as well as my family. So we went to church together and all again, I was too young to know, but she was the one person that would step in 
And she was always willing to help. And she would come by the house and, and help my mother and hold me and do whatever needed to be done and just kind of helped her push through. Uh, plenty of other people supported, no doubt. Uh, but she was the, the main person that kind of had the, I don't know what you call it, the courage to really do what needed to be done then, which was really just to give my parents a break while we were awaiting surgery and, and going through that thing. So very scary thing that on a regular daily basis, your child would need to be resuscitated. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it happens more than we think. But God bless her. Um, what kind of uh, toil, uh, burden, stress did this put on your parents? I mean, our parents aren't superheroes. Um, how did that affect them? Um, I know if you had other siblings. Yeah, well, I, I did. I had an older brother who was six um, and I eventually had a younger sister who's exactly two years to the day. She was born on my, on my second birthday uh, than me. So there's three of us. So at one point around age two, a little after, there was three of us for my mother to deal with. Thankfully, by age two, my health was a little bit better and I was pretty much in the clear. Uh, but, yeah, there were a lot of trying years with my um, mother and father trying to balance. Obviously, my dad was, at the time, very few women worked outside the home at all. Matter of fact, my mother never has. But, um, you know, he was working full time. He was in the television industry. He was an electrical engineer. So he was working literally what you call the graveyard shift. He's the guy who was responsible oh. for making sure the evening news stayed on at six, five-ish, sixes, And then he was to the, the, be there when the station uh, you'd have to be old enough to remember such, but stations used to go off the air at midnight and come back on at like 5 or 6 a.m. He'd be there to get the station back on the air. So a lot of years of stress where he was working. I mean, it was left up to my mother uh, as oh. as for the most part. But thankfully, yeah. again, this surgery occurred around six months old. So I think the majority of the burden was prior to that. And then after that, things got easier as the years went by. Okay. Okay. So with this um heart defect that did it did it affect your diet has it ever affected it and uh if so how much um i've always been a little bit more cautious probably than others now as a child i'll be honest with you uh, my mother would laugh and everyone that knows about this does as well i ate three um hot dogs every night of my life right before bed uh, not the best diet in the world, but I just, I loved hot dogs on, on loaf bread. And uh, so I would eat three hot dogs every night for years. So terrible diet as far as that goes. Now, the other side of it, uh, there were certain things I know that we were careful with. Now, since I've come into the transplant era of this, uh, things are a good bit different. I still enjoy my cheeseburgers and chili dogs and pizzas and stuff like that. But uh, there's a lot more moderation there as far as if I'm going to eat a cheeseburger for lunch, which I don't do that every day, believe it or not, but I'd like to, uh, then there's going to be a salad at night. There's going to be a balance there. There's always going to be a, a, a caution that comes in because it's a struggle. Uh, as my doctor told me, you, you know, bacon grease didn't do this to you, um, meaning my original defect, uh, but it, it could certainly take a toll on, you know, what I have now. So my donated heart, it could certainly take a toll. So I have to have a somewhat heart-healthy, low-sodium-type diet uh, to be able to do my best. Okay. So um, let's fast forward a little bit. So you've entered your childhood. You still were able to play. Um, and from 
just doing some study on you, from what I understand, you had some uh, pretty swift feet. So you, even though they didn't expect it, you pretty much lived this normal uh, childhood and teenage years. Um, you were a football manager. Wow, you've done some digging. Yes, I was a football manager slash trainer for four years. And um, for years, I don't know what to call it other than people to understand if I said I was the Forrest Gump. Um, I was the guy who ran everywhere he went. Uh, never advised by my doctors, but when I would go in and they would say, okay, what have you been doing? And I would tell them, they'd be like, oh, okay, you're not supposed to do that, but... And uh, so as a as a manager of the football team, which, again, I was for four years, I was very athletic. Um, I would ro- I would run wind sprints with a team every day just for fun. And uh, for the most part, it was faster than everybody on the team. Uh, there was always that guy, you know, that could, that could really do it. But I, I ended up with some some skill as far as speed, that sort of thing. Now, my wife is a – she's six foot three and a half, and she is a high school basketball star, was, and uh, recruited by several, several Division One colleges, chose to marry me instead. So she is the better athlete. So if anything comes out and, and it, anybody acts as if I've got real athletic ability, I don't. She can – she can shoot the hoops around me in a moment, but I was fast and I I became pretty strong as well because I always thought, well, if if I can do it and if I can get myself stronger, then I've got a better chance. Uh, a guy who's weak and lays on the couch is, is never going to do as well as someone who puts themselves out there and does something to stay busy. So I think it did help me a lot. As a matter of fact, when I ended up, we'll get to to the whole transplant side of it, one of the ways I was able to recover so quickly is because physically I was in great shape. My heart was terrible, but my body was in good shape. So good, good, good. So <laughs> you say your wife just made a terrible choice, huh? So. Yeah, she she chose what she did. I don't know how much she regrets it, but we're we're about twenty four years into it. So God be praised. God be praised. So. What kept you out of football? Why didn't you take up coaching then since you couldn't do the athletic side of it? Um, well, a few things. One, uh, just never really being in love with school as much. That was probably it. I was a, I was very popular, and I was kind of a clown. Uh, but as far as school, it wasn't a, the most natural thing for me at the time. Uh, mainly, though, aside from that, is at about 14 years old, I took up uh, all type of woodworking particularly cabinet making, and I became a cabinet maker by trade. And so when I got out of high okay. school, I was already recruited by several local cabinet shops and companies, you know, wanting my skills for that. So I just went straight in the workforce. I found out that oh. I could make uh, more money than the average Joe doing that. And so I kind of just went straight oh. into that and, and did cabinet making for, well, from 14 until now. I mean, I built I built something just yesterday. But um, professional cabinet making uh, did it probably for a total of about 14 years. Wow. Now that's a whole nother YouTube channel waiting to happen. <laughs> um, so at some point, I believe I read that you, during these years after high school, you decided to enter into the ministry. Uh, what drove you to that line of work? Well, um, that story is, is kind of wild as well. Basically, 
if you were to add it all up, uh, and, and I'll try to uh, explain this as well, but I'm basically a fifth-generation gospel preacher. Now, I say that by saying that my father's not a gospel preacher. He's the elder of the church, um, so he never went into preaching. But his twin brother did, so I count the twin brother, the uncle, as keeping that little you know, generation going. So I'm a fifth-generation gospel preacher. My brother's a gospel preacher. Um, he's been preaching uh, a good, well, full-time really since 87 or so, 1987, so a long time for him. I've been preaching since 2001. Uh, but I, I made that choice. I was in the cabinet making industry, making hands down great money. I mean, uh, I made I made twice as much as my daddy, you know, at 19, 20 years old, you know, that sort of thing, because I was good at what I did and had applied myself. But it never really as much as I love it. I I'd, I'd I'd do cabinet making tomorrow, you know, if need be, if I could. Uh, but as much as I love that. Uh, at some point. As a Christian, a young Christian, I got to seeing myself do more and more, whether that's leading public prayer, you know, the typical stuff that we get started in, you know, serving on the Lord's table, you know how all that works. And I got to seeing myself doing more and more, and it occurred to me one day that I had tried everything that you could do in public worship except for preaching. So one Sunday night, uh, we went uh, just going to, going to, you know, Sunday p.m. worship service, and we went, and I walked in the door. I had told nobody anything. I don't think I'd thought about it, really. I, I did. I walked in the door. I walked straight up to the preacher at my home congregation where I'd grown up. He had been there at that point himself probably six or seven years. He was a, a homegrown boy as well from the same town, but, so I knew him well. But I walked up, and I said, Jeff, do you care if I preach tonight? And he looked at me real strange. He said, no, I don't. Do you want to? I said, I, I'd like to try it. And I didn't even say anything. I just went on and sat down with my wife and we were like two rows behind my parents, and Jeff got up, his his name, and uh, Jeff got up and said uh, all the announcements like we traditionally would do, and then he said, Jim's going to speak to us tonight. And, of course, there was a little bit of a gasp, you know, like, which, what Jim, you know. And uh, I went up there, and I basically went through the gospel plan of salvation probably in 13 seconds, including verses. <laughs> And uh, but the thing is, it felt really good. And I'm not saying this is the reason anybody should preach, but thankfully for me, it felt really good. Uh, I, I left there wanting to do it again, not wanting to never see the pulpit, you know, ever. And uh, so it kind of put a drive in me. A few months later, a very small congregation up the road from us was in need of a fill-in preacher, and uh, they came and asked. Uh, we were at a singing, as a matter of fact, uh, just a Friday night singing. And they came and was asking a group just standing there saying, hey, we need some help preaching on Sunday mornings. If anybody knows anybody that's interested. And I stepped up and told the guy, I said, I, I said here's my phone number. And uh, hmm. went for it. A good friend of mine as well um, was toying with the idea of preaching at the same time. Uh, his name is Billy. He he was really, really talented at teaching Bible class, but he stunk at preaching, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I was oh, better at a sermon sense. than Bible class. Uh -huh. And so what we did, and we didn't even tell the guy that, that invited us, uh, what we did is he would go, we would go to this little congregation up the road, about 40 minutes, and he would teach the Bible class and I would preach. And we did that for off and on for a couple of years. And then one day uh, he came up to me and and said, uh, said Jim, I want to let you know I'm not going to be able to go with you to Ragland anymore. 
he said, I've made the decision. I'm going to the Memphis School of Preaching. And I said, I've been thinking about that, too. And he said, why don't we go together? And I forget the actual time frame. Basically, he had made his choice. He had really gotten serious, and he he left in January and headed the Memphis School of Preaching. And uh, I was kind of a chicken, so it took me till May to do it. And so I went in later than he did. Uh, but we ended up in there together. Um, excellent, excellent preaching school, excellent uh, everything. But I got started as a fill-in. Just this being willing to travel. And by the time I went to Memphis, I was preaching somewhere Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night every time the doors were open anyway by invite. Different congregations were allowing me. So that opportunity is what kind of got me on that side, got me started. And then uh, after going to Memphis, really just uh, was able to, to learn a lot and hopefully to mature pretty quickly in those two years and put me in a position where it's it's still what I love to do. Now, now, two questions. Um, how old were you when you got married, you and your, your wife? Uh, boy, you, I was probably 23 when we got married. Okay. My okay. wife was 19. And when did you start dabbling into the uh, ministry? So you, you never, you had never dabbled into it until you got married, if I heard you correctly. No, I had been married. As a matter of fact, we had already had our first child by then. And, um, when we made the decision to actually go into ministry preaching, if you'd like, if you will. Um, and it was something that kind of caught her off guard as well, but she could see that I was uh, motivated and that I was serious and that sort of thing. So she supported me a hundred percent to go off to Memphis and to do that. And um, it's, it's been a blessing for many, many years. What, what, was, <laughs> what was your father's reaction when that that first night, um, uh, my seeing you preach, my my family, uh, and we've we've changed a little bit. We've all gotten older. My family is we're not lovey dovey. There's no hugging, kissing, love yous, <laughs> nothing like that. It all goes on my my side of the family ever. Uh, no emotions ever shown, uh, whether for good or bad. But my father, I'm told, cried that night when I got up. Um, he's far enough back and the building's far, you know, big enough. I couldn't see him as well, but, um, I'm told he cried that night and, uh, and was pretty excited. I think, I think he was pretty happy that, that I was making that choice. That's good. That's good. That's good. So you start enjoying all these years of, uh, cabinet making, and now you've entered into the world of preaching and you got some disturbing news. Yes, I had uh, I had preached, you know, like I say, preached all around the area. Um, matter of fact, I don't even know what the last count was, but at some point, at some point, I'd preached at over a hundred different congregations. So that's that's staying on the move to go that many places, and uh, went off to Memphis. Came back from Memphis, tried to go back into the cabinet business. As a matter of fact, I was going to preach at a little small congregation up the road get a full-time job. You know, I had this whole plan of how wonderful that was going to work. And after just a few months, I said, this is not working. I want to preach more than this. I want to be more involved in this. And so we staked a for sale sign up in front of our brand new house and uh, sold it in seven days so I could move to Philadelphia, Mississippi to be a full-time located preacher. And uh, went over there, had been there probably not even a full year or maybe right at a full year, 
was standing at the kitchen window uh, right next to my wife. We had uh, some friends and family and some of the elders coming over the house for to grill out and was standing there and started feeling my heart doing some funny things, skipping beats and stopping and, and all such as that. And so that was the first indication that something was about to go badly wrong and uh, was rushed to the emergency room that night and ultimately brought back to Alabama from Philadelphia, Mississippi, back over to UAB where they, it took a few months, but diagnosed me as being back into stage four heart failure and need of a heart transplant. So, so I imagine that's the highest elevated level. Yes, stage yes, stage four is the worst it could get. And, uh, you know, things still, even in like anything, you know, obviously one, two, three, four, and there's there's four, but, you know, four could be anywhere from, you know, severe numbers in a cath lab and on the test to I can't even get out of bed. Thankfully, I could get out of bed. Thankfully, I could still function. As a matter of fact, I preached for a couple more years in Philadelphia. Uh, much of which I did toward the end of that, I preached with an IV bag on. I had to wear an IV uh, and a fanny pack for, uh, well, for 10 months, the last 10 months of that. And I preached every time the doors were open with the IV bag right next to me. Sometimes I'd keep it on the fanny pack in my belt, and sometimes I would actually uh, take the fanny pack off because it would uncomfortable. I'd hook it on the end of the pew. I, I couldn't get up in the pulpit anymore. Climbing the stairs was hard. So I would always bring a little portable podium down to the floor, which since that time I've not preached in a pulpit because I, I just enjoy that more. Uh, but I would always come down to the floor and I would hang my fanny pack on the pew and have the IV line trailing uh, there. And I preached uh, I preached every time I could possibly preach, uh, even after I left the full time and moved back to Alabama. I preached every time I could possibly preach that I was ever invited, which was, again, similar to before. Every time the doors were open somewhere traveling and uh, up until the night before I was admitted to the hospital for transplant, I preached on a Wednesday night, was admitted Thursday morning and uh, argued when I got to the doctor that day. It was for a checkup. You know, you stage four heart failure, you go to the doctor every week. And I got to the doctor that Thursday morning and they said, we want to put you in the hospital. We don't think you're going to survive much longer. We got to get you, you know, to the top of the transplant list. And I was supposed to leave Thursday afternoon uh, to go to South Georgia. I was preaching kind of a three-day type gospel meeting slash revival slash family day. So I was going to be preaching on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so we were supposed to leave that afternoon for that. So I argued with the doctors, you know, please, please, I promise I'll be fine. I'll come back in Monday. I'll be back here Monday morning, no problem. And, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to go. I wanted to do that one more time. I wanted to fulfill my, you know, what I had done. And they wouldn't allow me to do it. The doctor told me, she said, if you leave this this office today, she said, I'll take you off the transplant list and you'll die. So that's the first time I ever chose chose anything over preaching, really. But I, I did have to do it that day. And the people were very supportive in Georgia where I was headed, you know, obviously. And they encouraged me. I even called them. And said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, you fool, you, you're staying over there. That's what you're doing, you know. <laughs> and, of course, my wife was like, I don't know why you're even calling me. Because I called her to ask. And uh, I was at the doctor by myself, not expecting to be admitted. And uh, so everybody, you know, pretty much told me what I was going to do. And so I I did that. I'll fill in the blanks and I'll be in it. But uh, ended up in the hospital for over a month. Ended up with heart transplant. And then... 
got out of the hospital, got home, and held my first gospel meeting the next week after the heart transplant. So I had technically been home for a few weeks. Um, as for, I'd been out of the hospital a few weeks, let me say that, because I had to stay in Birmingham for six weeks after the transplant. But once I got to the house, all the way back to a little 1,800 people in Mumford, Alabama, I preached my first gospel meeting the following week and uh, preached that one and ended up doing six meetings in eight weeks. And so I've basically come home, dry clean my suits, grab a new shirt or two and a pair of shoes and go back out. And uh, thankfully, I had a guy at that time. Uh, I, I know you've heard of Marshall Keeble and all the work that he was able to do. And he did all of his work because of supporters, you know, people paid him to preach, you know, to go places and preach and supplied everything he needed to do that, not to make a million dollars, but to, you know, support his work. And uh, I had a lot of people that did that. I had one particular man named David Bowers that he was my driver and uh, he would put me in the car and haul me wherever I was going to preach. If, you know, if that was seven, eight hours away, we did it. And I preached those meetings and he would keep my wife and family back home updated how I was doing. Um, the first meeting I did with him like that, though, um, I asked him to do it. He said yes. And then I didn't find out till a few weeks later. He called my wife and he said, do you know what Jim's wanting to do? And uh, she said yes and said, well, he asked me to drive him and I, I'm scared to death. He might die on me. I'm not, I don't want to take him. And she said, right. take him because that's what he needs and that's what he wants to do. He's hard-headed. Just take him. And so uh, probably one of the better meetings I've ever had as far as you could understand this, I know, but, you know, sometimes you just feel that things went well. And, uh, you know, as far as the, at least the outward response that comes about came in, in one of those meetings just very shortly after transplant. And so it gave me a whole new heart and a whole new desire to, to preach the gospel. So. so up until you were diagnosed at stage four, between birth and that point, you hadn't had any issues at all? No, I had not really. Um, you know, I'm sure there were little quirky things I didn't notice at the time. I didn't know my body as well. So I'm sure there's some things that got passed as a teenager and all that weren't detected uh, uh -huh. because I was only going to annual visits by then. So, you know, I'm sure things happened that I don't recall. But I started having those rhythm issues I mentioned standing in the kitchen window when I was 32 years old. It's the first time that happened. And I was transplanted at 38 years old. So I made it even even after having the first issue, I made it six years out of just about sheer will and, and desire to keep fighting. Um, I was evaluated for transplant a total of four times. Uh, the first three times I was so borderline till, as a matter of fact, one of the three, uh, two of my doctors got in a very, very loud screaming, yelling fight outside of my door because it was what they called decision day. And I was supposed to be going in to find out if I was going to be listed for transplant or not to put on the list or not. And uh, one had the opinion I had to do it that day, and another had the opinion I could wait. And so they got in a big argument and then came in and left it up to me the first three times. The fourth time, which is the day that I was talking about, I was going off to do the revival meeting uh, when they put me in the hospital and wouldn't allow me to go. That was not really my decision. I was not given a choice then. I was severe enough by then. The doctor said, he said I'd back myself in a corner by then, and there was no other option. So... That's when I was put in the hospital. Of course, again, I'd been on IV meds for 10 months, so everything that they could throw at me, they were, and I was just deteriorating pretty quickly. So 
I'll come back to your wife in a moment. So I went a s- stroll down memory lane through some of your older videos, and I must say, um, the sense of courage and confidence I grasped from you, still doing those daily dose videos pretty much up until the eve of your surgery. Um, how are you able to do that? By the grace of God, you know the answer. Um, I, Like you say, I did do – the last video I did was right before surgery. It's just hours before surgery, basically. And the first video I did first video I did after surgery was seven days after. I was ready to do a video the, first, the next morning. Um, <clears throat> but they would not allow any type of cameras or equipment in the, in the CICU, cardiac intensive care unit, where I was staged. And so I wasn't allowed to do that, but I wanted to. And so I had to wait until I got moved to a lower, a less critical unit. And of course I started right back. So I've, I've actually posted before uh, those two videos, the last video and the first, they're seven days apart. Uh, but uh, tried to, I just had a desire to keep doing it. I was getting a lot of feedback of, people who at least said they were being helped by it and that was enough i mean if there was never but one who said so i was going to do that um but i knew and as so many people expressed i knew that with what i was dealing with if i could stand up under it um and if i could take it you know take it as a christian should that i could be influential because of it and uh, i've had people that in the years past you know um, who've told me, you know, if you had not been through what you've been through, you would not be able to teach me right now. You would not, I would not believe you as far as the gospel goes. I had one lady who a friend of my friend of mine and I stopped by to see randomly one day, we were just stopping in to check on the lady. I didn't even know her. And we walked in the door. She's in total tears. And uh, we ask what's happening again. I don't know where my friend does. And she said, well, I just got back from the doctor. I have a brain aneurysm. And he had been studying with her for a while and she would, she just wouldn't listen. Uh, She was into the whole um, faith healing stuff and, and all such. And so she was just hard to crack. And we were sitting on the couch that day and she's in tears and, He's trying to console her somewhat, and she said, you just don't understand. Nobody understands, and he stopped her, and he said, hold on a minute. This man understands, and she looked at me as a stranger, and we started to talk, and we ended up baptizing that lady that afternoon, and, uh, you know, it just, I feel as if I would never have had that impact, you know, without what I've been through, so hindsight's 2020 you know I, I never prayed to god and thanked god during the moment for what was i was dealing with should have maybe so you know anyway i just i really feel like that outside of what i was dealing with i would not have been able to impact that lady and uh she said that later so i have to believe what she's saying as well because she was she was not open yet. She wasn't open to the gospel yet. She didn't. She thought that's easy for everybody else to talk about because their life's perfect. And her life had always been difficult. This aneurysm was just the latest of many horrible things that she had been through in her life. And and to her, God had not been there. 
Um, he had just not been there in that way. Uh, she was she believed in God enough to where I said earlier she was involved in the faith healing stuff, you know, attending some of those services, hoping for some hope for other conditions that she had. But she was not yet open to the truth. And uh, she opened up that day because she found out, you know, hey, this guy, God's supporting this guy. He he really is helping this fellow. He's he's made a way for him. And uh, I guess she assumed he would do the same uh, for her. And, and, you know, to an extent has. He's not looking out for our physical side nearly as he does our spiritual. But I was a survivor at that point for her. So that's that's a, it's very incredible. I I. I I don't know where you, I mean, I understand you says the grace of God. I don't know where you found the energy. Um, it's, it's just actually inspiring that you're still willing to get to the people, um, as to what's going on with you and to still be able to give them some gospel hope. And it's kind of, that type of thing that you did is where I see, I would like to see this show go to. Um, because as, as you mentioned with her, sometimes, you know, okay, this just happened. It's just a fraction of everything else that's happened in my life. Sure. You other people are just so godly, perfect, yada, yada, yada. Where is God or when is God going to come look for me? Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I had to stop and pause and watch. I said, this, this guy's dedication is on another level (laughs) and he makes it look so leisurely. And I was just, it was profound to me. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I'm flattered. (laughs) It's not necessarily as accurate as you would think. You know, we all go through struggles and things are harder than they look. Um, a lot of those videos, and I've told this before, uh, I tried to be very transparent, especially in that Daily Dose series that you're more or less referring to. Try to be very transparent in those and be honest. And I tried to push through and make videos on days I didn't want to. A lot of times, however, on my worst, the worst, the worst days, I just wouldn't make a video. You know, people, I couldn't. And people would, would just assume, well, look at this guy. Every, you know, he's on here all the time. Well, he wasn't on here yesterday. He just didn't have the heart to do it. But most days I could muster something up because I always realized, one, I was in the hospital for a lot of that. And I could, I was thankful enough, blessed enough, I could get up and walk out of my room. And I could walk. 20 feet from my room and see someone in far worse shape than I was and someone who didn't have the ability to get up out of the bed, who didn't have the ability to breathe on their own in some cases. And I could see people in worse in Alabama, we say worser positions. Um, And so, you know, I I could always see that and I could always, it would help me to refocus myself to say, okay, you've got it better than you might realize you know, I had it better than I realized. And I always had people around me and I always had God on my side. So many of these people had nothing. Uh, they didn't have family, they didn't have friends, but more importantly, they didn't have God. And so they had nowhere to turn. They're laying on their deathbeds with nowhere to go and no answers. And uh, I had a, a, a more or less, you, you would probably call it, any of us, would a, a ministry that was available to me that I could have because of that. Um, my transplant surgeon, for example, um, 
he came to me uh, in when I say middle of the night, I literally mean like two thirty in the morning, a couple of days after my transplant. He came in. He would come by and see me all the time. And he came in that night and he said, I just want to tell you, I usually don't go back and check on my patients, honestly, but you've inspired me and you've got Hmm. something that I don't understand. Hmm. And he said, everybody's talking about it. Everybody. And I said, I said, God's been with me. I've got faith that God has protected me and he will continue to do so. Hmm. And I said, I don't know how you feel about that, but I said, that's how I feel. And his reply, which is somewhat veiled, somewhat of a parable. He said, I'll tell you this, Mr. Murrell. He said, I've never stood in the operating room alone. And I knew what he meant. You know, he don't he didn't understand God necessarily, but he knew there was something, something that was giving him the ability to do some of the what most people call miracles. I don't believe miracles, but you know, give him the technology, give him the knowledge to do the surgeries he was doing. And he said, I've never stood in the operating room alone. And so I, I, I knew then, I said, well, okay, here's a guy who, for the most part, is in a profession where there are so many people who don't believe in God at all, but yet they see the power of God every day. And uh, he, he had a grasp of it to some extent, you know. And uh, there were so many people that came that would affirm to me, you're helping us. Whether it was the nursing staff, the cleaning lady, whatever in the hospital would say that. And so people would come in and say, I saw your video last night, you know, and this and that, you know, the work there. And I would, I'd never shared the video with them, but they had done, they gotten it, you know, gotten at the nursing station, dug me up, you know, on YouTube. And so, so <laughs> I knew then that I had, had a new reach and, uh, the gospel meetings I mentioned, you know, doing the six meetings in eight weeks and stuff after transplant. Um, I actually had two different elderships who came to visit me they just happened to visit me on the same day and uh one of them said uh where are you preaching when you get out and i said I, i'm not sure yet and he said well, won't you come preach for us and the other elders one of the other elders sitting there from another congregation said no we want you to come to our congregation first you need to come you know we we got you back and you need to come visit us first and uh you know they was it was more or less all fun but uh at the same time uh they wanted to to help to extend the platform that looked like such a such a terrible situation maybe some would call it a curse and to extend that platform to where it could be a benefit to people you got people fighting over you now (laughs) they were making a joke of it anyway yeah so your wife how crazy did she think you were uh, not only are you doing videos, you decide to get up in a few weeks. Hey, baby, I gotta go preach. I'll see you later. I'm sure she thought uh, thought I was pretty well way off, but she had already been around me enough to know then that I was hard headed and was going to do what I could do. And uh, I went on a spree. I was so blessed when I got when I came out of transplant. I'm still considered disabled. I'm still not you know necessarily able to keep the full time of anything. Uh, going, but I have been in what I would call full-time meeting work uh, for a number of years. Of course, the pandemic's put a hold on all of that as well, or a lot of that. Uh, but for several, several years, um, I would do anywhere from 12 to 15 gospel meetings a year and usually would preach 35 or 40 Sundays out of the 52 every year, and just by invitation only, just, just going. And it, I wasn't going in 
I'll use the term people on I wasn't going to get my testimony. I went to preach. And and unless an eldership, which it only happened a few times, said, please, when you're done preaching, tell us about your health. Unless they did that, it never came up. I, you know, because I knew when to, when I probably could use it to my advantage, but at the same time, I never wanted anybody to say, oh, man, this guy's a heart transplant, and I didn't want that. I didn't want that kind of attention. I just wanted to be, hey, if it if that's what got me the invitation, fine. Uh, mm-hmm. But I came there to preach about, you know, preach about my Lord, and so uh, that's what we did. I'm an expository preacher by trade. I've developed uh, – more and more into that you've heard some early sermons where i <laughs> didn't have that yeah. uh but uh i get up and the first words out of my mouth are turn to this turn to this text and we hammer uh right then and uh that's the way i like doing it and people who invite me to preach for the most part have learned over time you know they'll call me and say can you preach this title this sermon this text this that i've i, I I, I, in general, will say, no, sir, I won't. I will preach. Uh, I will preach what I'll preach what God has that day. And that's not miraculous. Please don't misunderstand that. That's not miraculous. That's just as as I was taught in school by some of the old timers, great, great men. Garland Elkins, the one that told us this. Um, he said, if you can't put any fire in your sermon, put your sermon in the fire. <laughs> and uh you know if you tell me to preach the the 15 wa- ways to to raise a, a hateful child i don't mm-hmm. care about that find me the text is the principle there yeah i don't doubt that but find me the text that teaches that no but if you if you want me to come and preach through the book of james in a week we mm-hmm. can do that we're gonna go verse by verse phrase by phrase we can do that and uh but but i ha i i want I want the power that God has on paper to come out. Mm. And that's not going to happen if I'm so pressed into a mold of you got to make this text say this, or you've got to, you know, this is what we want to hear this weekend. You know, I, I just don't do very many of those at all. Um, mm-hmm. But I do, uh, I do enjoy, uh, God's given us every sermon we could ever preach, and we just got to flop that book open and find them. Absolutely, absolutely. So you you talked about uh, you mentioned um, Dave. Um, what was the support? Um, how great of a support did you get from um, church family, um, as well as your wife? She's part of this deal. What, how great of a support did you uh, receive during your ordeals? She was absolutely awesome. I mean, even though some of the things I was doing was uh, evil Knievel style daredevil stuff, you know, as in I wasn't supposed <laughs> to be doing what I was doing, uh, sometimes with the traveling and different things. And uh, I had, you know, I had a number of times where I would lose my breath preaching and, and you know, feel as if I was going to pass out. I get lightheaded. My eyes go black. I've had a handful of times where I've just had to stop what I was doing and just look at look straight into the, the people's eyes and say, I can't finish and go sit down. But I'd get up and try again the next opportunity. And uh, she supported me hugely through that. I mentioned David. David was an unbelievable, still is an unbelievable supporter. This man's been through, he's had leukemia. He's been through um, every type of treatment. He can't use his hands much anymore. He can't hardly get around, but... When I still see him, 
um, he'll say, "When we, where are we going? Where are we headed?" You know, he wants to, he wants to be a support. And there are so many like that. I mean, I, the number of congregations that I've been able to go to, uh, like I say, somewhere around a hundred congregations in probably twelve states or so. Um, so many of them came in because of people wanting to be a support, and somebody saying. You know, hey, you need to you need to hear this guy. You need to you need to call this fella. You need to. Yeah. And so I would every time I've gotten an invitation to go somewhere, there's usually a story. It's somebody says I stumbled on you on the internet, or my cousin's uncle's aunt called me and told me that I need to find this and list. You know that. And uh, I would just it was an opportunity. Every bit of it was opportunity, and every bit of it was made possible by good people who who love the preaching of the gospel and willing to support it. So, and you say you're no longer a full-time preacher, right? No, um, I still I still preach by appointment only everywhere mm-hmm. that I that I have an opportunity. I teach uh, very regular Bible classes. I, matter of fact, in January I start back again here at my home congregation. Usually preach there about once a month. Uh, okay. Usually okay. is what I do because I'm rarely home. Uh, my invitations carry me a lot of other places. I've spent the last six six out of eight weeks in a congregation because there's been a lot of COVID to go through and uh, their preacher had a terrible case of COVID and was, was down and out for a while. And so I fill in uh, for them. Uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the one of the few guys who can get a call at 6 a.m. and be standing in the pulpit at nine, you know, on Sunday morning. So they've learned that if you need, if you need something on a moment's notice, he's kind of, he'll be there. And so a lot of people. Are relying on yeah. The gospel mercenary. So um, now we'll shift forward. Um, how difficult for the typical person? I understand you had to go through uh, a few. Um, how should I put it? Decision making processes as to who gets transplants. So for the average person, because uh, I'm not totally abreast to it. I had a friend who passed away from leukemia um, some 20 some odd years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just kind of understand the transplant process for hearts. How difficult usually is it to get a transplant? It's extremely difficult um, out of, well, I'll put it like this. In the state of Alabama, I received my transplant in 2013 in the state of Alabama. For the year of 2013, there were 22 heart transplants done, only 22. So I was obviously one of the 22. And we're talking about having literally nationwide over 100,000 people on the list as far as all organs together. Usually, and I hadn't looked at the stats lately, usually 20,000 of those are hearts. And so out of... If those numbers are accurate for 2013, out of 20,000, 22 of us from Alabama got that opportunity. So very rare, extremely rare. I could go back and dig out some of those real numbers, but I do know that much. Um, I received my transplant on uh, May the 23rd of 2013. Within a matter of a month, uh, another good friend of mine who is a deacon in the Lord's Church received a heart transplant as well, and also an elder in the Lord's Church from another congregation received a heart transplant as well. So it was the month of, of church members 
uh, scattered around that I knew of. And uh, there have been a number of transplants uh, that have occurred around the Brotherhood, around the area uh, that are, you know, still coming about and such. But it's a very rare thing. It's difficult to get on the list, and it's very difficult to get to the top of the list and to be that person who gets the call. So it's a blessing. What does it take to, what does it take to get on the list? Uh, being so sick that there's nothing else can be done, but at the same time being so well that you can survive it. And it's a balancing act. It's a definite balancing act. So many people are listed uh, that never make it. Uh, many people die every day waiting because the organs are not available. Uh, there's just not the volume of organs. The need much outweighs the, the uh, you know, what's available. And uh, so many people die every day that in that terrible state. Um, but it it takes a, a huge battery of tests for a heart transplant. It's called the evaluation. Uh, it usually takes anywhere from a week to a month of testing. If you get it done in a week, it's the best way. But someone who's going through that, and I've got a whole video series on this on my Transplant Able channel, but someone who's going through that can expect to be tested usually about five or six hours a day for that entire week. You know, just poking, prodding. They test every sim every system in your body, head to toe, for everything possible. You know, that you know, some of the tests are pretty grueling. Uh, it's very emotionally taxing. As a matter of fact, there's a whole psychological se uh, section you've got to pass to do this. Uh, so you go to a psychiatrist and spend uh, one of those units that you go through, you spend about four hours face-to-face -face being grilled to see if you've got what it's going to take emotionally to get through the time. So it's it's difficult to get on the list, and, and, and much it's uh, rare to even get the transplant out of the end. So, you know, I, I don't share that to, to scare anybody, but. You know, if someone hears the word transplant, it's time to get everything in everything in order in your life, yeah. because it's yeah. it's not uh, it doesn't always have the most positive outlook. Yeah, and you know what I I, I didn't consider the psychological aspect, and I didn't consider that your body even has to be strong enough to take it. Mm -hmm. So wow, that's another level. My recovery, of course, again, I'm not, you know, I've, I've still got issues and I'll always have lifelong issues, much of which is because of the 38 years I went through as a congenital patient with a weak heart that's damaged some other, you know, parts of my body. But um, I came out of transplant within the first week. I was told that, uh, and this was by the surgeons, so people who saw this all the time, they said, Jim, you've had the most successful, fastest recovery to this point we've seen in 25 years. And I did something that I refer to in my videos a lot, I call it keep my legs. I kept my legs. Uh, I mean, I to this day, my family makes fun of me. I have humongous calf muscles because I spent so much time, even though I didn't have the energy for it necessarily, uh, working my legs the key to getting out of a transplant surgery, particularly a heart or lung, is to be able to get out of the bed quick and to hit the floor moving and to not let your other systems break down while you're trying to get your, your strength back in your extremities. And uh, so you're not able to use your arms a lot because they've broken that sternum. So for six weeks, you've got a lot of restriction on your arms. So the only thing you've got left then is your legs. So you keep your legs under you. And... I think that applies itself in so many places in life, even the spiritual. You know, we've got to keep ourselves moving 
you know, at least able to stand. You know, we have so many scriptures about standing fast, and uh, we've at least got to be able to stand. And if we if we can do more than that, we got to move forward. And so, uh, good application there. But that that was, for lack of better terms, my salvation physically was to be able yeah. to to keep keep going. And um, have you had any setbacks? I've had a few. Uh, my aortic valve uh, went bad back a little bit over a year ago. Had to have my aortic valve replaced. They did a brand new procedure on me to replace that called a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, TAVR for short. Um, I was the first transplant patient to have the aortic valve replaced by that method, which is a, a method where you go through a cath, so go through one of the major arteries and just run it up in there on a long line and replace that valve as opposed to a full open heart surgery, which is a traditional way of replacing a valve for all these years. Uh, it's a, it's a procedure that's been done since 2014, but I was the first heart transplant patient to have one done. Uh, they didn't think it would, uh, do well. I've done well so far. Um, I'm having some issues right now, to be honest, as far as my breathing and stuff. I'm, I was at the doctor today getting some pulmonary function testing done to try to see what that is about. Um, but you know, I expect there to be challenges and, um, I hope that I can take those challenges in a positive way and now you, do positive you the, things. I apologize. Um, were you the first in Alabama, this recent surgery, or are you the first in Alabama or U.S., period? First in Alabama is my six-month-old surgery. First first person to have open-heart surgery at six months old. This procedure, I was the first in the nation to have the TAVR procedure done. Not to have a valve replacement, but to have that particular procedure done First in the nation, and thankfully I can report there have been others since me, but I was just that guy to have that aortic valve replaced via the TAVR procedure. You are quite the trendsetter. Um, so now we'll enter the final stages of this. Um, what led you from daily dose to the mighty, mighty transplant helper? I did the daily dose for uh, almost two years, I think, total and all together. Uh, for the first year, it was almost daily, um, at least the, the work week daily. Um, the second year was more sporadic, so I don't know how much you can really claim. So one to two years. Um, at that point, I had already kind of started a um, an outreach where I would go back into the hospitals and visit with transplant patients and then I'd walk in the door my first thing I would say I would knock the door and I would say because they would be strangers and I knock the door and I would say hey you don't know me from Adam's house cat that's just something we say down here you don't <laughs> know me from Adam's house cat my name's Jim Merle um, I had a heart transplant whatever time frame it was a year ago two years ago whatever and uh, the doctors tell me I've had one of the best recoveries they've seen in 25 years and so I'm just here to encourage you and answer your questions and that's what I would say. And I met so many people through that, so many people who were struggling. Uh, the the doctors, the nurses, the staff, everybody knows me there now at my transplant center and, and have for a number of years. So usually when I get off the elevator, somebody runs up to me and says, hey, Jim, hey, Jim, you need to go down and see Mr. So-and-so in rooms such and such. And they'll point me to people specifically who are struggling. And uh, I've been doing that really for probably a whole year 
face to face, you know, making the drive a little over an hour drive just to do that. I drive over there, see three or four patients, drive back home. So that was my hobby, I guess. And a lot of people started to encourage me, particularly some of my doctors and nurses and coordinators, we call them, uh, which is a, a nurse practitioner that oversees my care completely as far as organization of it. And she was encouraging me. She said, you need to do something to reach more people. You're helping so many people here at UAB, but we know there are so many people around the world who, who have no access to this. There's absolutely nothing on the Internet, wasn't then at least, nothing about transplant. There were, there were the doctors that would lead the very technical medical jargon lectures. You could find that. Mm-hmm. You right. could find the person on the other side that would, you know, hey, just kind of vlogging my second day out of transplant, let my family know I'm doing well, which I'd done that in the daily dose to an extent. Uh, but there was no one in the middle who it was really there, as I say on that program, to advocate, educate, and motivate, particularly the education stuff. And people love to hear from someone, my phrase is, from someone who's been there and is currently doing that. Not done that, but doing it. And no matter what that is, you know, even as a Christian, if you can say I'm living the Christian life, you're a better representative of of teaching, you know, for teaching than anybody. Uh, and so you got to be doing it. And so I started started making YouTube videos. In the beginning, I was extremely nervous about it because Especially, I wanted the title to be something where if you clicked on it, you knew what you were going to get. I'm the transplant helper. You knew that title is self-explanatory. But at the same time, I've got so many transplant friends, and I didn't want them to say, well, wow, he started a YouTube channel because he knows it all. He, why does he know so much? I've been, I was transplanted before he was, and I thought that's what I might get. That's not what I've got. I've gotten so much support from all around the world. Um, my channel is, is very small in comparison to so many. I mean, we've got all the social media influencers with millions and millions of subscribers, but my channel is not made for that. My channel is made for a very small niche or a group of people who I hope, I wish didn't even exist. I wish there weren't people going through transplant, but there are. And so, you know, sitting right at 6,600 subscribers right now is an extremely high number for that type of a thing. And being consistent at over 570 videos is, is very rare. Um, and I don't really know how I've accomplished that. I started the channel to make 15 videos and quit. I literally wrote down 15 <laughs> topics I wanted to cover and quit. And uh, I did 574 last night, and 575 was this morning's interview. And so it's 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 continued, and uh, I guess will continue. I've tried to quit and uh, hadn't been able to quit. So now you got that you got the fire in you. As the Bible, as Jeremiah would say, yep. in your bones. Shut up in you my know. bones. <laughs> so, a um, few more, and I'll let you go. Um, you've mentioned how rewarding and fruitful it's been. Um, how is, as a uh, person that's received the transplant, how is life amongst this pandemic? And does it does is does it have any? Does it affect you any more than the average Joe Blow? Yes and no. Okay. In most cases, yes. We are all immune suppressed, immune compromised people. Uh, We live in a position, I'll give the common example, uh, when the stomach virus 
The stomach bug sweeps through town like it seems to do annually through everybody's little small town. And most people have that for 24 to 48 hours. I've been in the hospital for 14 days for that at a time mm-hmm. and uh, numerous times. Um, so the common colds, the flus, the viruses hit hard and they can be life threatening. The smallest of, of whatever can be very dangerous to us. And uh, excuse me. so this pandemic has, has been a little bit scary. And for most transplant patients, it's terrifying. I've put out a video that said, I ain't scared. The title of it was, I ain't scared of COVID, you know, and I'm serious about that only because I've already been through so much. I don't know that this could be much worse. Um, Not to take away from the people that have lost their livelihoods, their lifestyles, their lives. Plenty of those. I've got friends who passed away. Great friends passed away just last week. Um, Who was not a transplant patient, just a friend. And, um, so, I mean, I know it's terrible, but for me, I've, I've kept my confidence, I hope in God. And on top of that, being educated as I am with how to deal with this, uh, when, when the whole world had to start washing their hands and wearing masks, that's old, that's old hat to me. It's the type of things I do regularly anyway, you know, particularly the hygiene, the hand washing, that sort of thing. I, you know, I, all transplant patients who are smart that's something they've been told to do and encouraged to do and should do since day one. So the pandemic has not changed a lot of that. I've been a little more cautious, should have been more cautious probably. And, you know, may these may be famous last words at some point uh, if, if, if that's the will of God. But I haven't been affected directly by it personally, not my family, not myself. And uh, I mentioned earlier, I've been going to congregations where I know for a fact people have been sick. Now, they've been asked to stay at home and, and have uh, to, you know, for that. But I know that uh, I know that, it, it, you know, if I can if I catch this at Walmart, I may feel terrible about it. But if I catch this in in the congregation. I ain't sweating it. Um, I'm not saying it'll be any less or more dangerous. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all, obviously, but I'm saying that I've always thought if I, you know, if I, if I can, if I can pass on this life doing the Lord's work, I'm happy with that. So I can, I can deal with that. And if somebody come to me tonight and said, I've got COVID, but I want to be baptized, we're going to the water. And, uh, you know, that's a choice that some people may not make. And there may be some smarter choices physically, but. That's kind of what my attitude is about it right now. Yeah. I mean, that's not the end. Yep. That's not the end. Um, so what are some of, for the audience, um, what are some of the causes? Where can we throw our support behind as far as becoming donors or any other needs? What are what are some of those uh, causes out there that we can get behind? Well, there are a ton of websites that all take you to the same place as far as that goes. DonateLife.gov, that sort of thing. Donate Life America. I mean, you punch in Donate Life and it comes up many different directions. Registering to be an organ donor. And then more importantly than that, more than the registration, is letting your family know if that's if that's your decision, that, you, that, that that is your decision. Because at the end of the day, if you would be, be put in a position where your life can no longer exist physically, and the topic were to come up, you know, what about donating your loved one's organs? They're asking your family that. They're not asking you. And uh, sure, your indication on a driver's license or in a registration bank, you know, federally, nationally, that's going to be a, a, a clue 
as to your wishes, but at the end of the day, they're asking your family. And so I tell everyone, you know, register, all that stuff's lovely and good, and you, you need to do so. But uh, you've got to explain to your family your wishes and, and explain to them why you would make such a choice. You know, in my case, my donor had never heard of or thought of it, I'm assuming. Uh, but I'm good friends with the family now and love them, and I communicate with them on a regular basis. And the, I know the mother and the sisters made the decision. And they made the decision because they wanted to affect somebody. They'd never known anyone to have a transplant. But uh, now, uh, you know, I live on with her son's heart inside of me. And uh, I try to stand as an advocate for others potentially to do the same because just like I was and everybody is, you know, the people who approach me now and say, I've never known anybody to have a heart transplant until you. Well, I hope you never know anybody else. But no, when it right. comes to your house and, you know, I, we had uh, real quick backing up while I was waiting for transplant, we were putting newspaper. We're having my photograph put in the newspaper pretty regularly and my children's stories and everything in the newspaper and saying, you know, save my daddy. Uh, not that anybody could donate a heart by raising their hand, but that making awareness, making people aware that it was a need out there. And so, those, you know, those newspapers circulated to hundreds of thousands of homes just to put, a, for some of them, the first reminder they've had. Now, since that point, you can see TV commercials now. You can hear things on the radio. You can, there's more now than there was then. But awareness is, is huge. And so being aware that people are in need, and uh, that may be deceased donors like heart and lungs. It could be living donors like kidneys. So many people wait for years waiting on kidney transplant, going to dialysis every day of the week, you know, that sort of thing, to even survive. And uh, they need that living donor, someone to stand up and say, you know what, I can give them life. I can give them their life back. And, and uh, you know, I can live with one and they can have the other and we'll share. So that's just the, the awareness as far as transplant goes. As far as everything else on the other side spiritually, you know, we got to get the gospel message out. And we've got to let people know that, that uh, you know, we may not always be there for God, but he's always there for us. And and he's definitely, you say about, you talk about somebody having your back. He's the only one that does consistently and eternally. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely have a, even with some of the things you revealed that I de didn't even know, um, I have a profound respect for you. Um especially first and foremost as an evangelist, a man of God, uh, father, um, husband, uh, it, it, endless. Um, the things that you do are, are, are definitely encouraging to me and lets me know I'm not doing enough. Uh, so I'm definitely inspired. Um, definitely praying for, um, your friends, family, um, condolences to them and keeping you and your uh, wife and your uh, all your loved ones in prayer. Um, continue to fight the good fight on all ends. Thank you. Um, tell the people where they can find you. Uh, right now, primarily, the best place to find me in the world is to find me on YouTube. I'm the most searchable. If you punch in transplant helper, I'm coming up. I mean, that's that's it. <laughs> For the most part, transplant. I'm somewhere in the top of the search because I'm I'm what's available, but transplant helper you'll find me really quick uh right now as things stand i'm the guy holding a cheeseburger in front of your face it's what i've got on there now kind of as an inside joke but uh 
um, there, um, you know, I'm on all the standards, the Twitters and the Instagrams, transplant underscore help on that one, on both of those. But, uh, and then my email, Jim at the transplant helper.com. I'm always available there. And I'll say it out loud because I always do. Uh, anybody that wants to can text me even at 256-733-1214. And I don't mind giving that out because I want to help as many people, whether they have a spiritual need, a physical need, whatever. You know, I would rather, uh, to some extent, maybe even be um, annoyed by someone who's up to no good than to miss someone who really needs help. Yeah. And, you know, you just mentioned something that triggered a thought. Um, spiritual needs, you can also find um, Brother Jim Merrill at the Jim Merrill. Uh, you'll find a That's lot right. of the Preacher's Vault uh, episodes up there. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. appreciate you uh, reaching out to a newbie like me. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm praying for the work on well, all ends. It has been my pleasure, my honor to speak with you tonight. And I pray for everything that you do. And, uh, you know, every everyone that you can reach, I'm, I'm 100% behind you. I'm your new biggest fan. All right. Thanks for checking out this episode of Liberation. Subscribe to the show and follow Liberation on Twitter and Instagram at Liberation underscore pod. Liberation is sponsored by Doodlebugs by DeVita. Thoughtful handmade jewelry designs inspired by love, peace, and unity. Shop Doodlebugs at doodlebugsbydevita.square.site. And for the Etsy lovers, it's doodlebugsbydevita.etsy.com. Use the promo code LIBERATION and get 10% off your order. Follow Doodlebugs on Twitter at Doodlebugs4U. That's Doodlebugs, the number four, the letter U. And Instagram, Doodlebugs by DeVita.